Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast where we're focusing on an international tax theme and specifically Pillar 2, an evolutionary global project to introduce a new minimum tax regime coming out from the OECD. And and this project, as many of you know, has been uh, proceeding for a number of years and is really gathering momentum with 2023 being uh, a crucial year here uh, in taking shape and seeing rules being implemented. So specifically, there are a number of Pillar 2 announcements over the recent holiday period, uh, and we've come together today to discuss some of those key items, including safe harbours, accounting developments, and some recent administrative guidance. And then finally, we'll finish today's session by talking about what multinational groups should really be thinking about now as they're looking ahead to the rest of 2023 and their runway as they plan for the implementation of Pillar 2. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my co-speakers today. We have Ali Alum, who heads KPMG Australia's Tax Policy Centre, and Dennis Larkin, who is an international tax partner with myself. I am Peter Oller, an international tax partner leading our international tax team. And uh, so today uh, we'll kick off and and get into it. So Alia, um, could you just... Briefly recap, please, for our audience, where we're up to in terms of some recent developments on countries that have taken steps towards implementing Pillar 2. Well, at present, it seems almost like we're getting new developments coming through every week. The last um, big development was uh, Japan had introduced their income inclusion rules into Parliament last week, and it's now expected to pass by 31st March 2023. Qatar also gazetted a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax last week, um, but it's little more than a paragraph long with details to follow in regulations. And there has also been a fair bit of action going on in Korea, which we can probably touch on a little bit later. Um, Keeping in mind also it's budget season for a number of countries, there wasn't any Pillar 2 announcement in the recent Indian budget. Singapore has their budget tomorrow, I believe, so we may see if there's anything in that. Um, And then also the other thing likely coming down the pipeline is with the EU directive on Pillar 2 now passed, there's expected to be a number of EU countries releasing draft legislation over the coming months. So so lots of good momentum there, Alia. Um, And and Australia also having recent consultation as well. We know that Treasury is is working hard thinking about this. Uh, so, So in light of all of this, what are your expectations for the timing of commencement of the income inclusion rule and the under-tax payments rule. Maybe start with Australia and some global reflections. Yeah, sure. So as most people know, the Australian government hasn't yet given a formal announcement in relation to Pillar 2, although it did form part of their pre-election promise. Um, The expectation is they will implement the Pillar 2 rules. The question is, what start date will they take? Um, at this stage, our expectation is they will follow the direction of the rest of the world, which is looking more like an income inclusion rule start date for um, income years starting on or after 1st of January 2024. And a number of countries are also bringing in their under-tax payment rule a year later for 2025. 
um, for qualified domestic minimum top-up taxes. It's a bit of a mixed bag for different countries looking to bring some in, looking to bring those in in 2024, some in 2025. But I think um, the undertax payment rule timing is an interesting one because, as you might recall, the undertax payment rule is the backstop rule that could apply where a headquartered jurisdiction um, hasn't brought in the pillar two rules or where the parent itself is low taxed. And so this sort of forces the hand of other countries that are otherwise reluctant to bring in the rules. So if that country chooses not to collect the top-up tax, then another country will. So most have been working on the assumption that the undertax payment rule is rarely going to apply um, given the likely proliferation of qualified min- domestic minimum top-up tax and income inclusion rules by the time 2025 rolls around. But Korea threw a spanner in the works the other day um, because they enacted some core Pillar 2 legislation just before Christmas. And they've gone with a 2024 start date for both the income inclusion rule and the undertax payment rule. And in addition to this, it appears that they've got an uncapped additional tax under their undertax payment rule mechanism, uh, which means that, say, for a US multinational group with low tax subsidiaries, um, where the US groups, US is not likely to bring in income inclusion rules in 2024, um, then this means that if they've got a Korean sub or branch of the group, no matter how small, could collect the worldwide top-up tax of the group for the 2024 year. So that's that's causing a bit of um, angst with some globally. Um, yeah, so as I said, main, remains to be seen for Australia, but that's the direction of travel heading that the rest of the world's heading in. So we're hoping to see at least a budget announcement on that. I think that's a really interesting point, Alia. I I did recently receive a call from a client uh, in the US and they were thinking very hard about the implementation timing uh, of the UTPR around the world. Um, They they wanted to specifically hear my thoughts on when it may come in in Australia uh, because they were concerned um, about any country that may implement it where they have a local subsidiary and what that could mean, uh, whether they might have a top-up tax amount popping up in one country, um, which could potentially be a, a large amount of top-up tax relative to the local profitability of that subsidiary and what it might mean for them. So um, so definitely something, the timing point that I, that I know is interesting clients. Now, yeah, there's another... Sorry, hello. No, I was going to say, yes, it, re- it does. Um, it, it is an interesting point also because Korea taking that date encourages other countries to do likewise, so to, to share in that top-up tax if one country is going to go there. So... It also just really highlights that need to start preparing now because you're getting these unexpected announcements like the one in Korea to to really um, accelerate the need to understand the impact. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's a theme that we'll be uh, coming back to again today around uh, starting to prepare now. Um, There's another plank, Alia, that we haven't heard much about, the subject to tax rule. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, it's been pretty quiet in recent times. Um, there are still discussions going on, but and so we may start to see things gradually moving in the next um, little while. But, you know, query when they, they will actually look to have the start date for the subject of tax rule given the delay in release of the proposals. Um, if you recall that the subject of tax rule applies to individual payments that are taxed at a rate of 9% or, or less than 9%, um, and the types of payments that are going to be covered by it were very much a topic of negotiation and discussion. So whilst we expect interest and royalties to be included in that, the blueprint did have a whole range of different types of payments that could get caught um, and potentially something that would be quite a challenge to 
operationalize and so um, again with, with also the need for a um, multilateral instrument to implement it um, I do question whether a 1st of January 2004 start date might be realistic for this. Yeah, so we'll watch that space to see more uh, as it emerges. Okay, well, why don't we turn to what was in the recent announcements. So, Dennis, there was some good news over the holiday period. We heard of the announcement of transitional safe harbours, a proposed permanent safe harbour, and transitional penalty relief. Can you please tell us about those proposals? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, it was good news indeed, and good to have seen to keep us occupied over the summer holiday period, which was great. Um, and also, exquisite timing as always, given it was um, on the one-year anniversary of the original uh, issuance of the original Pillar 2 rules. Um, so as you said, there were a number of safe harbours. There were some transitional safe harbours um, to provide a bit of a softer landing into the rules, um, which would be based on country-by-country -country reporting principles, uh, a framework for a more permanent um, safe harbour, and then the development of some um, transitional penalty relief regimes as well. So going through each of those ones individually, um, the first ones were the transitional safe harbour periods. And so these were basically an intention to give some temporary safe harbours which would operate for fiscal years beginning on or before 31 December 2026, um, but don't include fiscal years that end after 30 June 2028. They're jurisdictional in nature, um, as the top-up tax calculations would be, um, and also based on C-by-C or country-by-country country reports as well. And so those safe harbours are as follows. There's sort of three of them which are intended to maybe make the compliance in those early years a bit easier. So the first one's a de minimis test, um, where a jurisdiction has total country-by-country country reporting revenue of less than 10 million euros and country-by-country country reporting profit loss of um, before tax of less than 1 million euros. Um, the other one is a simplified effective tax rate test, which again, picks up numbers in one's country by country reporting, uh, and basically says that where a jurisdiction has an effective tax rate that's equal to or greater than a transitional ETR top up tax rate, um, which basically transitions from 15% to 17% over the transitional period, um, the top up tax is deemed to be zero. And so that effective tax rate is calculated by dividing simplified covered taxes, which are essentially the income tax expense in the multinational entities' financial statements for the jurisdiction, minus any sort of non-covered taxes or uncertain tax positions, by the profit or loss um, in the multinational entities' country-by-country -country reporting records. And then finally, there's a routine profits test um, in which the jurisdiction's profit or loss before tax, if that's equal to or less than the substance-based income exclusion, um, for that particular constituent entity, um, then as well, you know, you sort of have some relief there as well. So these are all intended to be basically safe harbours, which, as I mentioned, uh, sort of ease the way into the um, rules for those early years um, and acknowledge some of the difficulties around obtaining the, the relevant data to do the more, the more full-on tests. As I said, there's also then um, a framework being put in place for the development of a permanent safe harbour regime as well. Uh, and that would essentially mirror some of those tests I mentioned before, although rather than using country by country reporting, these would use um, simplified uh, globe calculations as well. So some of the principles within the globe rules um, will be sort of using simplified income, revenue and tax calculations in determining whether the um, entity for the jurisdiction in question meets those de minimis um, tests as well. So we're obviously looking forward to seeing more detail on those, um, but these were quite welcome, I suppose, given the magnitude of how one might need to do, undertake some of these tests. And then finally, um, there was some quite welcome guidance around transitional penalty relief, um, which again would apply during the transitional period I mentioned before. 
Um, and basically the idea there, once again, is to sort of soften the entry into the rules, acknowledge um, good faith activities of taxpayers in trying to apply these rules. Uh, and essentially the OECD document says that a tax administration can essentially um, not impose penalties or sanctions in connection with filing globe information returns if the multinational enterprise has taken reasonable measures uh, to ensure the correct application of the globe rules. And so whilst that concept of reasonable measures isn't outlined in greater detail necessarily in the paper, um, it does sort of talk about taking a good faith attempt to understand and comply with the relevant domestic application of the GLOBE rules and any qualified domestic top-up tax, um, and also sort of acknowledges that there will be relevant provisions and application of rules in most jurisdictions already around sort of penalty remission that should be uh, considered in that context. Thanks, Dennis. There's, uh, there's a lot to digest there, and I, I think there's um, you know, scope for a lot more other discussions, particularly once we, we get more details out around the, the permanent safe harbours. When, when I think about this, so it's really kind of saying there's a three-year window here where we'll allow some transitional relief um, to, to ease your way in. I think the other words you use, which I, I think is a good description um, and recognises the complexity of the rules. But three years is, is not very long. Um, and, and so really perhaps it just adds um, or allows you to get a bit more clarity earlier on in your impact assessment of what this might mean. But by the same measure, while simplified, some of the trade-offs of that simplification might actually hurt you with an ETR. Um, for example, using country-by-country country data means you're, you're subject to, for, for example, the aggregation that occurs with CYC reporting. So you could have duplication of profits where you've got dividends in a multinational group that are aggregated together for CYC reporting. Um, and, and, and an interesting thing there, Peter, is um, that also depends on how you've actually done your CYC reporting because the OECD did actually change it to eliminate intergroup dividend income a number of years ago, but the the local Australian instructions hasn't, haven't been updated for that. And so different groups are taking different approaches on that. So you've got to be real, really understand how you set up, set up your C-by-C data. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, which, and one which um, Ali will go to when we talk about what clients and, and groups should be thinking about now around getting ready for an impact assessment. And one of the first stages there is to look at your data and, and assess what you've got, how it's prepared, and is it fit for purpose, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And even with these transitional safe harbours, a lot of groups are still looking to do their impact assessments based on the full calculations because you need to know what the long-term impacts are going to be to, to be able to make proper business decisions and, and forecasting, you know, identifying the technical issues for resolution during consultations. Um, plus a lot of groups now are moving to the cloud, so their ERP systems being upgraded, they're implementing tax provision software, and so you really need to understand what the data requirements you're going to need long-term perhaps are now during that implementation process in order to optimise it. Yeah, very much the need for an integrated plan here that might start by looking at some of these safe harbours with your impact assessment. But even in that impact assessment might not stop there and, and for a number of good reasons really should go further to look at uh, what you might have to do uh, doing a full globe calculation. So, so let's come back to that because let's come back to that at the end when we, we think about that uh, in terms of what's next and what comes forward. There are some other developments earlier, weren't there, around accounting and, and what were they? Yeah, so the International Accounting Standards Board last month released an exposure draft to amend IAS 12 in order to deal with Pillar 2, and it had three main aspects. So 
The main one is that it provided a temporary exemption from the need to do deferred taxes as a result of Pillar 2 or, or for QDMTT. Um, so that's very welcome by in-scope groups as it would have meant that you would have technically had to try and work out what deferred, the deferred tax impacts of Pillar 2 would be in the future um, upon substantive enactment of the rules anywhere in the world, which is something that not even the accounting experts could figure out how to do. Um, but in recompense, there will still need to be some pre-regime disclosures. So for annual reporting periods starting on or after 1st of January 2023, groups will need to disclose whether they operate in a location that has enacted the rules, you know, what the average weighted accounting ETRs are for each of those locations, and also choosing they can choose to supplement this with disclosure of ETRs calculated under the GLOBE model rules where this gives a different result. Um, finally, that you know, post-regime, there'll be a need to reflect the current tax impacts of the rules in the accounts, um, but that was always expected to be the case. So if you're a multinational and you operate in a jurisdiction that substantively enacts legislation this year, um, before that legislation itself applies Pillar 2 to you, you really need to start thinking about this. And, and it's not just whether your effective tax rate under international accounting standards is um, less than 15%, is it? You actually really then need to understand, well, what does that mean for Pillar 2 and top-up tax and, and going beyond that, which I, I guess, Ali, means it, it comes back to this point around 2023 being such a big year and uh, for Pillar 2. Yeah, that's right. You can't just think about that you're working to an eventual globe return filing deadline several years down the track. There's a lot of um, gateways and milestones where you need to understand the impacts well in advance of that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, not something we'll touch on today, but when you think about the uh, federal government's budget proposal from late last year around increasing tax transparency, um, it all goes to this, doesn't it? Uh, if you're going to have something disclosed in one aspect, you need to understand it end to end and know what that might mean from a transparency and uh, perspective and what, what the market and um, other stakeholders will, will do with uh, one piece of information. Okay, um, so Alia, let's stick with you. There's also more. There's been some administrative guidance. Tell us about that. Yes, yes. So long-awaited package of administrative guidance um, was recently released and it did contain a number of big-ticket items, most, mostly focused on the general theme of providing additional clarity um, or reducing compliance burdens, but there are a number of cases where it actually raises more questions than it answers. Um, I'll just call out a few of the key ones. One of the changes um, that I've been quite focused on is around allow, change to allow groups to elect um, to carry forward excess negative tax amounts. And this relates to Article 4.1.5, which was an, a particularly harsh provision that could impose top-up tax in a loss year where a net per permanent benefit arose, even in, even in high-tax locations. And so... This amount that this sort of negative amount that would have given you immediate top up tax can now be carried forward effectively and used in a year when you've actually got income, and it does that by reducing the adjusted covered tax for that income year. And I think this is a much fairer outcome because it means that you're no longer taxed in a loss year and you don't get penalised for a permanent benefit embedded in a tax loss that you might never use. But it does add another layer of compliance burden to track these amounts. Um, another welcome change was that the guidance confirmed that hedges of investments in foreign operations can also be treated as excluded income. So they now can match the treatment of the equity in which they hedge. 
And then another one just worth highlighting is um, the transitional rules for intergroup transfers of assets, which, if you recall, gets triggered from 1st of December 2021 until the, the multinational group gets into the globe regime. Um, so that's the definition of what constitutes a transfer of an asset has been extended considerably um, to a whole raft of deemed sale transactions such as capital leases, licences, prepayments of royalties and rents, um, transfers of assets through sale of controlling interests, total return swaps and tax residence migrations, as well as asset value adjustments from fair value accounting. So those are probably some of the main ones, um, and the, but there were a number of smaller items in the in the um, guidance that will need to be factored in as groups work through their ETR calculations and, and data requirements. I mean, probably the other one that's worth highlighting is um, the guidance goes into when a domestic minimum tax can depart from the GLOBE rules and still be considered qualifying. Um, and it also confirms that the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax rules take priority to the CFC rules. Um, I think one of the interesting features of that is for, for the qualified domestic minimum top up tax and in, in terms of how it can depart from the normal rules is that for under the income inclusion rule, you just take the percentage of top-up tax um, that's the ownership based on the ownership stake of the of the ultimate parent for the most part. Um, but for a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, the local jurisdiction can apply to 100% of the top-up tax of that low-taxed entity. Any reflections on that, Peter? A lot, Alia. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think what it's, it's really interesting because it was a really thick release with the administrative guidance and a lot of them are helpful um, and a number of them in a sense are, are kind of like patches where we've we had, uh, you know, the, the, the policy principle and the concept of the model rules and then the commentary and then everybody started thinking about them and started to see issues with it. And so the administrative guidance, you can see it starting to solve for that um, and, and, and demonstrates perhaps the inevitability for a project of this ambition and global spread as you move from concept to application, um, things will change. And, uh, and Alia, this is not the, the only tranche, we're expecting more tranches of Minister of Guidance, aren't we? So we can really expect to see more as we see this coming out. Yeah, correct. There'll be drip thread throughout the year in smaller tranches. I was going to say for anyone who wants to see the understand the full suite of um, issues coming out of the administrative guidance, we do have a um, global summary that's that summarises that and there's also a web, global webinar that people can listen to. Mm. No, that's uh, well worth listening to. And so it'll be interesting to see as countries enact and legislate the regime, how much they link it to the guidance and the risk there that their in-country legislation may start to de-link over time as guidance changes or more comes out um, and, and what that might mean for interpretation around the world. I, I think that's an interesting one to watch this space. Um, but, but perhaps a question on the spot both for you, Alia, and for Dennis. Uh, what do you each think of the likelihood that Australia will adopt a domestic minimum top-up tax? In my view, it's quite a high likelihood. Um, it seems to be the direction of travel for most countries around the world now um, with the logic that why, it, if there is any top-up tax to be taken, um, revenue authorities want to collect it locally rather than cede it to another jurisdiction. And whilst we don't expect too many 
instances of top-up tax in Australia, given the high corporate tax rate, um, there are some quirks of the rules do mean that there can be situations where that happens. Um, and so expect that Australia will look to, to bring this in to make sure it gets some additional tax, whether it ends up being as much as they may anticipate is another question. Dennis, your thoughts? I'd agree with Alia. Peter, I think that seems to be the direction of travel um, globally, but I think as well it makes a lot of sense, as Alia says, um, to sort of have a chance to take that top-up tax yourself rather than cede it to another country. So uh, I I'd certainly think people should be preparing for that, even if you're largely you know, a domestic organisation, um, it's still worth sort of being prepared for a domestic minimum top-up tax to apply and to sort of plan accordingly. I share the same view as you both, and this is where we could see, certainly for Australian corporate groups, um, them needing to spend more time and uh, brain power thinking about this, perhaps, than uh, the income inclusion rule itself. But um, stay tuned for more. Okay, well, why don't we finish our session? Uh, I mean, there's been a huge amount of developments, obviously. Um, things that we'll, we'll keep our listeners up to date as we hear more about through uh, this type of podcasts and our other usual channels. Let's now turn it into the practical uh, and talk a little bit about what groups should be doing now to get ready. So, Dennis, what will be some of the key impacts for business as they think about Pillar 2? Thanks, Peter. I think that's um, it, it's really something worth focusing on. We've heard a lot of information today, as you mentioned, around uh, impacts both sort of domestically and, and on a global basis. So I think some really important sort of headline items here are firstly understanding um, the impact on the global effective tax rate of a business. So understanding what impact the Pillar 2 rules could have on a business's effective tax rate. That's both um, looking at existing naturally effective tax rates, looking at the deferred taxes in your accounts and how that might be factored into a Pillar 2 calculation, but also what additional impact that any Pillar 2 exposure might have for you um, throughout your, your sort of global group and then coordinating and communicating that through various stakeholders in a business, be that the board, the audit and risk committee, um, and even potentially your ESG reporting as well. I think the second one feeds into that naturally, and it is the new financial statement disclosures that Alia touched on today. So I think that's a really important consideration, firstly, because that may well be the first place in which the impacts of Pillar 2 are being seen um, throughout a business. But secondly, it really buttresses that need to have very close communication and coordination between a tax function and a finance function as well. So this is certainly not something which can be done in isolation by a tax group. It needs uh, a lot of input and a lot of buy-in from other parts of the business because again it may well be seen first up through the accounts and that will impact on things like audit scopes, audit procedures uh, as well as once again reporting um, through the board and the audit risk committee. And then finally I think it picks up um, increased compliance costs as well. So we discussed some of those safe harbours um, and I think it was very very validly mentioned by Alia and Peter that they sound great in theory but there's still firstly a fair bit to do in terms of making sure you've got the right level of um, country by country reporting if you need to use those safe harbours but also there's going to be a longer term play here so you still need to really be on top of how these rules might affect you once the transitional period is over but secondly there is an awful amount of data you need to get on top of um, so it's important to prepare for that through your compliance uh, pre preparation and that may well involve additional costs additional resourcing for the business as well so i think they're, they're sort of the really big headline takeaways and then you know, off the back of those are some considerations around how do you plan to fix some of the data tax gaps you might have? Um, again, how do you keep your stakeholders up to date? And then secondly, flow on things such as, for example, if you're planning, say, M&A activity, um, how, how might these rules affect that M&A activity and your modelling of some of those businesses? 
Thanks, Dennis. There's um, a lot there, obviously, to digest uh, for groups to think about. So if we then turn to commencing a Pillar 2 project and um, kind of really, what does a runway look like now? Um, I've mentioned a couple of times it's a crucial year and we're now mid-February, so we're already partway through it. Alia, you've been involved in uh, a number of our impact assessments with clients. Um, when should groups start thinking about their Pillar 2 project and what should it involve? Yeah, I mean, if, people, if you haven't already started thinking about it, then now is the time to start because you really need to start looking at working out how much work is going to be involved. So at least you want to get stuck doing a massive project on top of you and your team's normal BAU work. Um, you, you want to get budget approval for internal and external help in this project and you need to do some initial thinking and impact assessments to work out exactly how much and how long these projects are going to be. And these conversations with the management should be happening now. I mean, the first step that groups are working on is really that scoping exercise about whether groups are in or out um, and then looking at their impact assessment exercises. You know, at the very least, you want to understand whether you're in the transitional safe harbours, but also doing those detailed impact assessments and data gap for the material jurisdictions. Really thinking about it from all the things like... Um, you know, M&A and new business transactions and working on those pre-regime actions. There's a lot to think about in terms of building an implementation roadmap um, and, and working out what needs to be done by who, when and how much it's going to cost. Yeah, really uh, getting a handle on it now and understanding what it looks like is, um, as you mentioned earlier, new processes being built, understanding your data, what it looks like, what you might need to do to change that. But actually, once you understand what this might mean for your group, you may well then want to look at your global structure, your value chain, and say, is this still fit for purpose? You know, should I change anything here? So that, that could uh, then spark a whole round of different questions that you need to think about, and you need to get on top of that early uh, and, and need to get moving on that now. Yeah, correct. And the other one I just highlight is that if you do need systems changes to, to collect the, the data you need for Pillar 2, you know, we're talking about sort of 18-month projects plus there, so it's, it's, you've really got to work out what needs to be done now. Well, we might wrap up there. There's been a lot we've covered today. We hope that our listeners found that interesting. We really enjoyed talking about it. Uh, we, we enjoy talking about this and do that a lot. Um, so please, if you enjoyed today, tune in next time for future podcasts. If you do have any questions, feel free to reach out. Um, we'd love to hear them from you, uh, both uh, if we could have another conversation with you or that we could bring in when we do another international theme podcast. So thank you, Alia and Dennis, and thank you to everyone, and we'll say goodbye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash taxnow or follow our LinkedIn page, KPMG Tax Now Insights, for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.